0: Ezra chapter 3. Let me tell you where we've been and then we'll go to where we're going this morning. Chapter 1, the book of Ezra. We are tracking through the book of Ezra. We're going to go into Nehemiah. We're going to look at some of the prophets. The nation of Israel was in captivity to begin with. And he always had a plan to get them out. So chapter 1, we saw that God is faithful. The author made it clear for us so that we understood that. Chapter 2, we saw that those who were in captivity who came out of captivity, who went by the edict of Cyrus to go and rebuild the temple. Chapter 2, he lists those people that went. And we focus not necessarily on that list of those who went, but we ask the question, where are those who didn't go? It was a small percentage of all the Jews who were scattered abroad in the captivity. And we ask the question simply, where is everyone that they're not coming back to the place where God had said, this is yours, this is mine, Build my temple here. Well, Cyrus said you can go back, and some did, and some didn't. And we boiled it down, and we said that some got too comfortable in their captivity. Some were so comfortable, so set in the life of bondage, that they decided, you know what? It's there's no reason to there's no reason to go back. They didn't they didn't understand the blessedness. They didn't understand the freedom. They didn't understand that that door was now open for them to return, and by the edict of Cyrus to rebuild their temple. They just didn't do it. That was chapter 2. Last week, we took a break from Ezra because I wanted to show you the heart of David. I wanted to show you the heart of David as he brought the Ark of the Covenant back into uh, its rightful place in Jerusalem, the city of David. And I wanted to tell you that story where David dances before all the people, before the Ark, but most importantly, he dances before the Lord. So we talked about how as we come to God, as we worship in the presence of God, as we stand before His holy presence, we have the same challenge. That we cast aside our pride. We cast aside all pretense. And we give God exactly what He asks for. We worship Him as He desires us to worship Him. No matter who's looking, no matter who's watching, no matter who is disgusted, no matter who is offended, we give God the worship that He desires and He deserves. That was last week. This week, chapter 3 of Ezra, we're back in Ezra, I want to show you that Ezra says we need to go back to the basics. Back to the basics. Let me tell you what this passage is about. Vince Lombardi, famous coach in the NFL, Hall of Fame coach in the NFL for many years. In 1958, he was recruited as the new coach for the Green Bay Packers. Now, let me tell you about the Green Bay Packers in 1958. They were terrible. Okay, The Green Bay Packers had no history of winning. In fact, they were losers, to put it plain. It was a horrible program. They had horrible players. They had horrible organization. And somebody tapped Vince Lombardi on the shoulder, brought him from West Point and said, hey, lead us. Not an easy task. Accomplish the fundamentals, the basics. Legend has it that early on in his first season, Vince Lombardi's team got stomped. And this is a professional football team. These men are professionals. And uh, after the game, after his team was routed up and down the field, legend has it that Vince Lombardi comes into a very solemn locker room. No one was talking. Men were dirty, bleeding, tired, sweaty, depressed, and at this point afraid of what coach was going to say. Story goes that Vince Lombardi walked into the locker room, went over, picked up a football out of a locker, stood in the middle of those grown professional men, held the football up and said, Gentlemen, this is a football. As an indication of, we've got to go back to the basics. If you've missed it, this thing we have right here is a football. Let's start right there. If you know much about pro football or Vince Lombardi, you know that he became one of the most successful coaches of all time, a successful organization, even to this day, won many, uh, many Super Bowls. All from going back to the basics. Sometimes, in order to move forward, you have to go back to the beginning. Let's do something different this morning. Why don't you stand with us? Stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word this morning. Ezra chapter 3, 1 through 6. Now when the seventh month came and the sons of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, the son of Jehozdak, and his brothers, the priests the Rubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and his brothers arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to burnt offerings, to place burnt offerings on it. As it was written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So they set up the altar on its foundation, for they were terrified because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord. Burnt offerings morning and evening. They celebrated the Feast of Booths as it is written and offered the fixed number of burnt offerings daily according to the ordinances as each day required. And afterward, there was a continual burnt offering also for the new moons and for all the fixed festivals of the Lord. They were consecrated and from everyone who offered a free will offering to the Lord from the first day of the seventh month. They began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. May God have a blessing to the reading of his word May together. And I imagine if I hadn't read this passage, I, I, I start to imagine what do you do? Where do you start? I mean, at this point, the temple is destroyed. Even its foundation has been crumbled. Everything's gone. And you got to ask yourself: If you're this remnant, if you're this small percentage of God's people, and you come back, and everything's everything's down, everything's been burned, everything has been devastated. Where do you start? What do you What do you do? Where do you go first? What's the first step? The author makes an elaborate effort in chapter 3 to make sure that we see that the nation of Israel went back. The nation of Israel went back to the basics. In verse 1, they went back to the basics of being unified as a nation. That small percentage of Jews who came back to build the temple of God, who took advantage of that that miracle, that miracle of freedom, they said, "Let's bring it together, boys." They locked arms together. It says in verse one, as one man in Jerusalem, they went back to the basics of unity. Verse two says, "Then Joshua the son of Jehoshaphat and his brothers, the priests, the the son of Shelteel and his brothers arose and built the altar, offered their burnt offerings on it." But notice this phrase. They did it just as it was written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They went back to the blueprint. They went back to the basics. They gathered as a unified body. They built the altar, but they didn't just build it without a clue. They built it just as it was written. Verse 3 where did they build it? They set it up on its foundation. The temple was destroyed. The altar was, was destroyed. But there was some semblance of a foundation of where the altar was. And the passage says they went back to that exact place to build this altar once again. They didn't just pick some random place. They went back. Verse 3 says it was built on its foundation. Verse 4, look at this. They celebrated the Feast of Booths. That's exactly what they were supposed to do in the seventh month, verse 1. They're becoming orthodox right here, okay? They celebrated the Feast of Booze as it is written. And they offered, how many burnt offerings? The fixed number of burnt offerings. They did it exactly the way they were supposed to. How often did they do it? They do it the a continual burnt offering, just like they were supposed to be. Also, for the new moons and for all the fixed festivals, they fulfilled all those duties. And from everyone who offered a free will offering to the Lord from the first day of the seventh month, they got started on the right foot. They went back to the blueprint. As it is written, could have been their motto. Let me tell you maybe why this is. These men and women who who are doing this As I said, they were born in captivity. The moms and dads had dropped the ball. Moms and dads had dropped the ball. The principle of this passage is to go back to the basics through obeying the word of the Lord. By the way, this is the exact thing that got them in trouble to begin with. Jeremiah says, as he prophesied that they would go into captivity to begin with, Jeremiah says... God is going to do this thing. He's going to bring the Babylonians in and he's going, to, he's going to take you away and he's going to scatter you abroad and he's going to desolate the temple. He's going to allow all that to happen. Jeremiah says, because you have not obeyed the word of the Lord. You didn't listen to what God said. You didn't get it right. You did it how you wanted to do it. You lived how you wanted to live. Jeremiah says, so you're going, you're going away. This generation, I imagine as they get back into, let's go back to what Moses said in the beginning and let's do it right from the beginning. Let's go back to the basics. Step one. principle of the passage is to go back to the basics. To obey exactly what God says. Just do what He says to do. And the author makes, makes a great effort to help us to see that they did it just as it was written. Now, practically speaking, look where they started. That's the principle. But I want you to see in this passage where the author would have us know they started physically. Rusty, put up the uh, slide of the temple there. I've got a slide here. You can't see it in very much detail. This is a slide of Solomon's temple, the temple that had been destroyed, and uh, they were they were going back to rebuild this temple. Okay, chapter three. However, doesn't start with where I might think they should start. I mean, if it were me and I, I didn't read this passage and I think, OK, we're back. Where do we start? What's the first thing we do? Where do we start building this thing? Where's the most important part of it? I would probably go back into the, the top left there. I'd go back into the Holy of Holies. I, I'd, want, I'd want that place where the Ark of the Covenant is. I'd want that holy place that has that, that veil that separates us from God. I'd want, I'd want to start thinking to you what this, this altar was for. An altar is very simply the place where a sacrificial offering was laid on behalf of the people. The passage says that this is where they offered their burnt offerings. Their duty, their set regimen, handed down from God, was that in order to sustain the relationship, to sustain the connectivity between man and God, Something had to be done. There had to be something done because man was now sinful. And so there had to be something done so that a holy God and a sinful man could commune. And so God set this thing up of a sacrifice. An altar represents just that. An altar represents very basically the place of sacrifice. The place of sacrifice. Without the altar, there can be no approach to God. Without the altar, there can be no approach to God. Let me explain this. Back here in the top left, that's the Holy of Holies. There was a curtain. There was this thick veil that separated man and the presence of God. You didn't pass that. As you came in the temple, that was the thing in the very back. That was the last place man could go. Would you notice that before God... And Israel knew this. The nation knew this. They went back to the basics. They knew first things first. What do we do? And essentially, they went all the way back to Genesis. You know the story. Genesis 3 says that Adam and Eve had sinned and God had come back and found them in the garden. Trivia question for you. At one point... In the history of man, in Genesis, does God say to Adam and Eve, to mankind, you can now eat animals? Anybody know? Genesis 9. Did you ever notice that? Genesis 9, after the flood, after Noah and the guys get off the ark, God says, now you can eat meat. Very specifically. Up to that point, they were vegetarians. Okay? Okay? And here's why this is important. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve had fallen. They had sinned. There was now this, this barrier of sin between them and God. You remember the story that God comes back into the garden. He finds Adam and Eve. And they weren't naked like they were before. They had covered themselves. Adam had sewn together some fig leaves, done the best he could to cover himself. And it may have, may have been a pretty good covering, Right? But God says that the animal must die if that's going to take place. Okay? Now put it together here. Adam and Eve weren't slaughtering animals to eat at this point. Adam wasn't in the habit of going out and hunting deer with his bow. What God does at this point before the eyes of these vegetarians is He slaughters an innocent animal on their behalf. Blood is spilled. Death is incurred because of Adam and Eve's sin. And now God gives them a covering, a sacrificial covering. They get the animal's skin from the animal who paid the price for them. Now let's go back to the altar for just a second. You cannot approach God you can't even get in near God without going past the altar of sacrifice. The sacrifice was a substitutionary, provisional sacrifice. Uh, let, me, let me break it down for you guys. Uh, maybe you know baseball. Okay, uh, Hokey illustration to illustrate such, a, such an important point, but it may be the easiest for us to understand. In baseball, there's something called a sacrifice fly, right? Guys, you're tracking with me here? A sacrifice fly is that one guy stands on home plate and he, he says, you know what, I'm going to take one for the hit a home run and boost my stats. But he says, I'll make a sacrifice and I'll hit a pop fly. That means he's going to hit the ball as best he can, as best he can muster. He's going to hit it up into the air, into the outfield, so that he assures his own out. He knows that if he does his job at this point, he will be out. And he'll go back to the dugout. He'll never make it to base. He sacrificed his stat so that this guy can make it home. It's a sacrifice fly. He takes the hit so that the whole team gets the benefit. Tracking with me? The altar was a representation of sacrifice. Upon that altar, there was sacrificed... This substitution, this provision. Genesis 22, there's another familiar story. Abraham and his son Isaac. God tells Abraham, take your son up to the top of Mount Moriah. And he says, I want you to bind him. I want you to put him on the fire. I want you to give him to me. I want you to offer him to me. You know the story well. That as Abraham is reluctantly but obediently following the word of the Lord, he hears a rustling behind him. Turns around and there's a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. Can you can you imagine sacrificed, gave up its life not because of what it had done, but it gave up its life as a substitution and as a sacrifice for Isaac. That, that's the picture. Are you getting a picture of the altar? That's a picture of the altar. That's that's where the nation of Israel began. The nation of Israel didn't didn't start with the foundation of the temple. The nation of Israel didn't start with the Holy of Holies. They didn't start with all all the accoutrements that went into the temple itself. The nation of Israel started where they should start. They started where they had to start. The nation of Israel started where their sin required them to begin. And it was at a place of sacrifice, a place of substitution. They had no hope, if the temple was even built, of ever approaching God, of ever drawing near to God, if that altar was not on the steps of the outer court. So how is the nation of Israel doing right here? I think they're doing pretty well. Verse 1, they bring back the unity. They gather together as one man. Verse 3 says they gathered in the midst of opposition. We'll hear more about that later in coming chapters. But they, they go back. They go back to the blueprint. They go back to the beginning. They do first things first. Before the foundation of the temple is ever begun. Listen to me now. Before the foundation of the temple is ever begun, it's as if they pour this footing... You know that before you pour a foundation, you have to dig a footing? You have to dig down and make sure that there's first things first. The basics of pouring a foundation is that you have to have a strong footing beneath that foundation. And it's as if in chapter 3, Ezra is saying, look, the nation of Israel doesn't just jump to the foundation of the temple. They pour a footing, and the footing is this altar. Because without this altar, the temple is unapproachable. The presence of God is off limits. Unless we have this mediation, this place where a sacrifice, a substitute, this thing that God requires to happen if we're going to approach him, unless there's this this altar, then the temple is worthless. No glitz, no glamour. They just do what's right they just do what's right so what can we learn among other things we love and in that case the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive man isn't that good the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive man sometimes making headway sometimes moving forward means we got to go back and get the basics Right. The nation of Israel was sent by Cyrus, was given the green light by the edict of Cyrus to rebuild the temple. To rebuild the temple. Ezra makes sure we don't miss at the beginning of this chapter something has to be done first. Something has to be done before the temple can be built. As I considered this passage and was praying about it last night and this morning, I got a picture in my mind of what this might mean for us. I have in my mind a picture of this, this temple that they were, they were about to begin building. And I see the entrance. And I see that the entrance, the entrance is, is a one-way deal. And I see that there is this, this altar... That you must pass to get there. And in my mind, I got this picture of all of humanity surrounding the temple of God, surrounding the place where God is. Okay, if you can imagine this. I got this picture of all of humanity surrounding this temple to get to the God that they've created in their own mind. And for them, whatever path they choose is just fine. And some guys are trying to climb in windows. Some guys are trying to find a back door. Some guys are up on the roof trying to find a way in. Some guys have tried to sneak in the front door. And all the while, I get this, I get this picture of God sitting in the back in the Holy of Holies, on His throne, and He's calling out to the world, I've been telling you, I've been telling you that there's just one way, there's just one way it's through those doors. But before you come through those doors, before you pass through this curtain, make sure, make sure you pass that altar. And make sure that you have the correct sacrifice upon that altar. You've got to pass there first. Sir, ma'am. First things first. Back to the basics. You can't, you can't approach a holy God without having that sacrifice in place. We have we have a sacrifice in place. There is not an altar like Solomon's altar. Approach me. There's just this one way and you have to pass through, you have to come by way of the sacrifice. You have to you have to make sure that before you come in here you fall down out there. When Jesus was crucified, Scripture tells us that uh, in the temple, at the very moment that Jesus died, that curtain, that very thick, heavy veil that separated, that, that was a symbol of the separation between the holiness of God and the sin of man, that veil was torn from top to bottom. And the earth shook at the death of Christ. As if to say, the doors have been kicked open. The way has been made clear. Why? Because of the sacrifice outside the door of the presence of God. Sacrifice on a cross. A substitution, a provision, a perfect lamb, no blemish, a permanent. Sacrifice this time That would last throughout the ages That if we approach it By faith Count it as our own God says you can now come in Walk right into the presence of God Boldly approaching the throne And do exactly what God says to do It is always the best way and I imagine that that is very clear to those who had spent 70 years in captivity who had never even seen Jerusalem to this point. I imagine in their hearts they said, we're going we're gonna, to, as best we can, we're going to start off on the right foot. And the first place to begin is with an altar. There has to be something that happens between me and God before I can ever approach Him. Guys, we don't start with the temple. We start with the cross. Some of us have come this morning um, in a sense to approach God, to draw near to God. And I wonder if there's a sacrifice in our past. I wonder if we've we've circumvented. I wonder if we've, we've gone around. I wonder if we're trying to climb over the walls. I wonder if we're trying to come in a window. I wonder if we're trying to find our own way to draw near to God. Can I tell you, God is saying, today What he's been saying from the foundation of the world. There's been a lamb that is slain on a cross. It's one way. You have to pass through one way. There is no other way to draw near to me. Perhaps you've not, as always, we could have focused on a number of details. Lord, would you seal it to our hearts? Would you seal it to our minds? Would you impress it upon us beyond this morning? Would you not let us rest at night? Would you cause us throughout this week to return to this image of the the presence of God, your presence dwelling in a temple? Would you cause us To find our mind wandering back to what this altar might have looked like that sat outside your holy temple. Would you cause us to ask ourselves the difficult question Have we come by way of the altar? Have we come by way of sacrifice? Or have we found our own way? you for your word I thank you that it speaks throughout the generations most of all I thank you that your story never changes I thank you that from the beginning to the end Lord you've always made a way you've always made a way I pray that hearts are amazed by what you've done this morning Lord, I pray that that heads, this morning, that heads find themselves bowed low in the presence of the One who would do what you've done on the cross. Lord, I pray that our mouths would be stopped, that our hearts would be humbled. Before this cross. Before the cross that makes a way. Lord, convict us where we need convicting. Challenge us where we need challenging. Change us where we need changing. In Jesus' name, amen.